You're about to hear a message that was preached at Calvary Fellowship in Miramar, Florida. At Calvary, we exist to help people take their next step with God. And we pray that this message helps you do just that. Well, how's everybody doing? Hey, we are so glad that you're here. I have literally been counting down the minutes since we left last time. And can I tell you that, how many of you were here last week? Can I ask that? Look at you, back for more. How many of you, this is your first time here? Okay, how many of you are not really sure where you are? All right, very good. Uh, so anyway, I, I left and I told my wife this morning, I'm like, I feel like it's been a month since last Wednesday. And uh, anyway, so I am thrilled absolutely thrilled to be here with you. And let me tell you about a weird experience that I had uh, about a week ago. <clears throat> I was with my youngest daughter, Olivia. She's eight. And we went to Target to pick up some groceries. And uh, while we were out, we stopped at the gas station because we were in my wife's car. So I stopped at the gas station to fill up my wife's gas tank. Because, and if you know, if you've been around Calvary, you know this, but if you don't, I, I I don't like my wife go, having to go get gas. She's more than capable of doing it. I just feel like it's a lowly task and I'll just do stuff like that. And so we pull up to the gas station, we pull in. So we go to Target and then there's a gas station right next door. And when we pull in, there's these two girls that have gotten out of their car and are walking into the cashier to pay. <clears throat> now, one of the girls was wearing a very short top and a bottom that maybe in some countries would be considered clothes. I don't know. And um, uh, she, they became quite popular with the gas station crowd, by the way. And, but my daughter in my car starts screaming, Dad, call the police right now. That woman is naked. And I'm like, well, she's not naked. She's wearing something called a thong. And I can't believe I'm actually even having this conversation with you at eight years old. But in some universe, that's considered clothing. And she's like, Dad, no. You call the decency police right now. And so, and I, I'm, she's like, because I'm at a gas, I'm eight years old. And I'm at a gas station. And I can see that woman's butt. Make the call. I, I don't know what to do. I got to call somebody. So I call a, a number that I had in my phone. And they're like, hello, thanks for calling Banana Republic. And I'm like, I'm like, hey, listen, this is really going to sound weird, but this is my situation. I explain our unique situation, and they direct us. I'm like, well, we don't think we can help you. Can, do you want us to give you the number Victoria's Secret, who I think was probably the real culprit behind this situation. Now, there is a moral to this story. Well, there's probably two morals to this story. One is, is that in the Bible, thongs are sandals that are worn on your feet any other thong, and you might be outside of God's will. And then, and this isn't an issue about, you know, whether Christians should be allowed to wear one-piece bathing suits or two-piece bathing suits. That's a personal decision. I personally wear one-piece, but that's up to you, you know. Um, <laughs> but uh, so, and I'll tell you this, uh, but here's, here's the other thing, right, is that what you wear matters. And it, 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 it's just, it just it matters. It matters if you're wearing the right thing for the right occasion in the right place at the right time. And this is important because last week we started this series teaching through the armor of God, which is a very famous section in uh, the book of Ephesians in the New Testament. And it's this, uh, this famous section that, that Paul writes and 
The Apostle Paul has been arrested in Jerusalem, if you weren't with us last time, and wasn't getting justice through the court system. And so any Roman citizen could, at any given time during their trial, could just say, I appeal to Caesar. And that's what he did after a couple of mock trials. He just said, you know what? I appeal to Caesar. And they said, you've appealed to Caesar. To Caesar, you will go. And so he travels to Rome to present his case before the emperor. Now, if you're like, well, that sounds like an interesting story. If you go, uh, read uh, the book of Acts chapters 21 through 28, that'll really give you the whole story as to him being arrested all the way to him getting to Rome. Now, you can imagine the wait. If everybody says they want to appeal uh, to Caesar, there was about a two-year waiting list to have your day before the emperor. And so during that time, Paul finds himself essentially on house arrest, and he writes four epistles that are found in the New Testament, uh, Ephesians that we've been talking about, an epistle called Colossians, a personal letter called Philemon, and then another epistle called Philippians. And Paul was chained to a Roman guard, which served as the inspiration for the armor that Paul begins to describe in detail and how it relates to us as Christians. And last time we talked about this thing, he says, having you, uh, having, being girded with truth, that is having a belt of truth, that a belt isn't really a piece of armor, but a belt is something that holds everything else together. And that's what truth does. It holds us together, even when the world is falling apart. And that truth is the basis of everything that we do. We put on truth, we walk in truth, and every other piece of armor that we're going to look at, including what we look at tonight, is all related to truth. And so we're going to look at the second piece of armor that Paul describes as it's connected to the belt of truth, and the, it is the embodiment and activity of truth. And so we're going to start in Ephesians 6, and we're going to, we'll take a running start from where we read last time and complete the verse. It says, Finally, my brethren, be strong in the Lord and in the power of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. For we do not fight against flesh and blood, but against principalities and powers, against rulers of darkness of this age, against spiritual hosts of wickedness in heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God, that you may be able to withstand in the evil day, and having done all, to stand. Stand, therefore having girded your waist with truth, having put on the breastplate of righteousness. If you pause there and give me your attention, to the Roman soldier, the breastplate of righteousness, or the breastplate was a sleeveless piece of armor that really covered his torso. It, connect, it, it protected his heart, his lungs, his uh, you know, midsection, it, 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 connect, it, it protected his intestines and other vital organs. And so what protects these, the vital organs of the believer? What, it's what Paul calls the breastplate of righteousness. And once again, what does that mean? Because the word righteousness in our culture is a word that has zero meaning. Uh, and and we're, we hear about someone being, you know, they, can, they think they're righteous, they're self-righteous, but it really is usually uh, talked about in, in, in a negative way way. But when we talk about righteousness in the Bible, there's really two different things that we're talking about. There's what we call, in, in theological terms, it's either called positional or practical. Positional is seen in the life of Abraham, where God promises to give Abraham a son. The problem is that Abraham is 90 years old. And according to Paul, when he writes the book of Romans, he says that, Paul's, that, that uh, Abraham's body didn't work 
in the child functioning way at the age of 90. Do I need to say more about this? Are we all kind of flowing? Okay, I'm getting a lot of like, okay, yeah, I'm with you. Don't say any more about that. So now, and so that's, that's what's happening. So even though he's 90 years old and his body couldn't physically produce children, God gives him the promise that he's going to have a son. And Abraham just takes God at his word and believes him. And Paul writes this in Romans chapter four. He says this, you'll see it up on the screen. It says, this is why it was credited to him as righteousness. The words that is credited to him were written not for him alone, but also for us, for whom God will credit righteousness for us who believe in him who raised Jesus our Lord from the dead. So when the Bible says that Abraham was righteous, it doesn't mean that Abraham was perfect. In fact, we read about all of his failures uh, the Bible doesn't cover that up, but his victory was in realizing righteousness wasn't about being good enough. Righteousness was about believing God. And that's when God credited him righteousness. And that's good news uh, for all of us because that's what God does for us. Because when you came to know Jesus, there was an exchange that took place. Jesus decided to take all your sin and all your junk and traded you. And we got wrapped in his righteousness. Once again, Paul uh, continuing on this theme in 2 Corinthians, says it this way, God made him uh, who knew no sin to be sin for us that we might become the righteousness of God. So, is that it? We come to know Jesus and then it's, it's done? Well, God has given this to us, but now we've got to act like it's true. God told Abraham that he was going to, what God was going to do through him, and Abraham still had to walk in that truth to see it come to pass. And there's just this thing that happens, and this is what righteousness does, is that it, it puts light on a dark place. And when light hits something that's dark, whatever is there flees, and, and, and God's spirit begins to work. Now, let me explain what happened. This is, this is last night, so you're getting up to the minute information on what's happening in my crazy life. And so... Last night, everyone in my house is asleep, and I'm about to fall asleep when I hear a screeching outside, which I thought was a car that was having some kind of malfunction, but then I kept hearing it again and again. Now, it's totally dark behind my house, but because the street lights, I see a little bit about what's going on, and I see a fight has broken out in my backyard, essentially right behind my pool. Four raccoons were engaged in a rumble, a serious fight, and they were kicking, screaming, biting, and a couple of them were squealing because they, somebody was losing on that. So I go over to my kitchen, and, which is where I have, uh, we have an entry to our backyard, and so I turn the lights on. And so I turn the lights on in our porch, and they all stop in their tracks. Once the light comes on, one raccoon takes off and jumps into the yard. Another raccoon jumped into my pool. <laughs> and, and two of the other ones jumped on the wall. And if you've been uh, at Calvary, you know that there's a wall behind my house and I throw things over the wall. Anyway, watch those messages. Anyway, so, um, so we have now, and are, they are on this wall watching the guy that's in the pool, which leads me to believe that they were ready to go like tag team on this guy. Well, but the guy that was in my pool, he has no intention of leaving. 
So I get my phone. So I, I open the blinds up. And, uh, you know, and my, my oldest daughter is usually up late. And it was like, I'm dying to talk to someone about this. So I go to her room, and I was almost going to wake her up. I, and I'm like, because she's usually up late. And I'm like, for once that I want her to be awake, she's asleep. And so now I'm this, all this is happening, and I am alone. And so anyway, so I open up the blinds. I go in my room. I get my phone. And I flash the light. I turn the, 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 the flashlight on and I flash the light on the two that are on the wall. They start scurrying and uh, they, they head over to my neighbor, my other neighbor's yard. And so, and then the guy in my pool, because now I'm just bothered that he's in my pool and I'm not. Now I ain't going out there now. Those things are violent. And so I, the guy spends 20 minutes doing laps in my pool, and then walks off into the night, which I'm like, you know what, fine. I loved his work in Guardians of the Galaxy. I'll let him have that one. And so, you know, but here's, <laughs> here's the thing, right? Nothing changed until I turned the light on. And when, listen, and that's what righteousness does. Practical righteousness, maybe we could call it right living, is when I turn the light on in the dark corners of my heart and let God do the work of transforming me. But see, you and I aren't going to experience the favor of God in our lives until we let the light on and we, we let the light in. And then you know what happens is that um, he starts, because when we leave things in the dark, that is the perfect climate for dark things to grow. The breastplate of righteousness that Paul is talking about is essentially how do we let light in through our actions. And this is where these two things connect. If truth is what holds us together, then this breastplate of righteousness really is me acting out and living in the light, living in the truth. So what does that look like practically? So here's the first thing I want to, I want to tell you, if you're a note taker, and that is uh, that I protect my heart, which is the throne of my will. I protect my heart, which is the throne of my will. And now let me explain. The heart, biblically, is where serious life decisions are made. Now, of course, we're speaking poetically. Your heart is a muscle. But we still say that now, right? You talk about, you know, your spouse asks you, your kids ask you if, if, if you love them, and you will say, I love you with all of my heart. And so that is the poetic language that the Bible uses. In fact, let me give you a couple of verses here that talk about that. Um, here in the book of Daniel, chapter 1, it says, but Daniel purposed what? In his heart that he wouldn't defile himself with the king's delicacies. In the Gospel of Matthew, it tells us this. Teacher, what is the greatest commandment in the law? And Jesus said, you will love the Lord your God with all your heart. In Romans chapter 10, the Apostle Paul talks about believing in Jesus. He says, if you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. In fact, the Bible talks about the heart, I believe it's 830 times and only twice is referring to the organ of the heart. Every other time, it's referring to the will and the emotional center of a person. The heart was seen as the place where you make your most committed decisions. And so this is the thing that Paul says needs protection with a breastplate because our lives go astray when our will is compromised and our lives are blessed when our will is in line with God's will. And listen, most of us would talk about, say, yeah, we, I trust God, I'm trusting the Lord. And, and, and listen, however, there are times if we're being honest 
that we'll say we trust the Lord, but behind the scenes, we're trying to manipulate circumstances. The problem is, and, and you know this, if you think back at a moment in your life where you're like, yeah, I'm trusting God, but then you've been trying to kind of help God out or really help yourself out. And then at the end, if it works out, like, oh, that was just like God blessing my mess or plan or whatever. And so, uh, but here's, here's what happens. But a lot of times we try to, you know, help God out and we end up kind of digging ourselves into a deeper mess. A few years ago, a couple years ago, I, I had to go to California uh, to go speak at this event. And so I had to take this early flight on Monday <laughs> And my seat was towards the back of the plane. Now, if you're a person who flies, you know that back of the plane, not good, right? If first class is the very front, the further back you go, you know, it's like first class and then all the back is like no class, all right? So that's kind of where, where you are. So, um, that's where, so that's where I was at. I was not happy about it, but I had an aisle seat. And when you're on a five and a half hour flight to Los Angeles, I'm like, look, I I'm fine. Anyway, the guy I was flying with, uh, he's like, look, I've logged in to the airline's website and I'm going to change our seats. And I'm like, dude, listen, don't mess with it. Like I'm on an aisle, you're on an aisle and, and we're not even in the same aisle. We don't even have to talk. So let's just, and, uh, and he's like, no, 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 this is going to be a lot better. So we get new seats. Now the new seats offered about six inches more of space, which as you know, on an airplane, that is the name of the game is leg room. So I board the plane, I sit down. And then, and you know, I don't know if you do this or you realize that you do this, but every time you sit down on an airplane, and I try to be the last person who sits on an airplane, but if you're sitting first, you are sizing up every person and like somebody shows up, you know, and, and you're like, oh no, keep, keep moving. I don't want you anywhere near me, right? And then you see someone that's like very slender and you're like, yeah, come over, sit down right? Because I want my seat and half of yours. And so that's kind of, anyway, that's how you, and that's probably wrong, but, but everyone does it because we're just, anyway, so that's what we're thinking. So now what happens is, is that this guy sits down in front of me. The guy happens to weigh, let's just say about 500 pounds, give or take a Twinkie or two. And, um, and so he leans back in his seat. Now, because he's a big guy, Gravity allows him to turn that minor recline into basically a flat sleep-by-number traveling experience. And his seat, I mean, the top of his scalp was inches away from my nose. And so I tried to open my computer because I had to work on the message I was going to give at this event while I was on the plane, and, and this guy's body would not allow my computer to open. So now... I, what am I going to do? I don't know what to do. So I'm, now that he's leaning that far back, I look over his shoulder. I'm sitting, watching what he's doing. So he's writing all these emails. That's the only entertainment I have is just watching him work. And so, and as he's writing these emails, I look at his email signature. And this was my favorite part is that he was the president of a chain of fitness centers. And, uh, and I'm like, yeah, that's about right. And so now once again, my point is, uh, and once again, I used to weigh 280 pounds. I can make jokes like that because I'm still fat on the inside. So, so that's that. So anyway, if you're like, I can't believe you said it's like, it's okay. And so anyway, but here's the point. Sometimes, listen, our ideas, they seem so smart. They're so good. Uh, and only to find a 500 pound man standing between us and our dreams. And, 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 and this is what happens is that um, now it wouldn't have been a problem if I had just taken the seat I was given. 
But, and this is what happens. And you've had these moments where you're like, no, 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 I'm so smart. I'm going to get this. You watch. This is what, this is the seat God gave me. Let me see what I can do with that. And it ends up being a disaster. So this is why, how does that, how does that work? The apostle Paul, when he was writing his letter to the Romans, uh, his famous letter to the Romans, he says this, um, he, he, he spends the first 11 chapters talking a lot of theology. And then in chapter 12, he makes this turn and he starts with this verse. He says this, I beseech you therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable to God, which is your reasonable service. That phrase, living sacrifice, is a reference to the Jewish sacrificial system. In Leviticus chapters 1 through 7, there were several different sacrifices that are mentioned. There's a sin offering that's mentioned where you've sinned, you've done something wrong. You could actually offer a sacrifice and be forgiven and things could be right between you and God. There was a fellowship offering that you would give, that things were okay. You just wanted to celebrate the fact that things were good, things were right between you and God. And then there was the burnt offering. And the burnt offering was different. Sometimes uh, the fellowship offering, you would have a piece of the, the, the offering and you would eat it. It was this symbol that um, things were good between you and God. And the burnt offering, the whole thing is consumed. And what you were saying in the burnt offering is, God, this is me on this altar. I, I, I am dedicating myself to you completely. And this is the first step to knowing and doing God's will, where you decide that you are going to be a living sacrifice, where your life totally belongs to him, where you trust him beyond what your eyes see, what your heart feels, and what your mind thinks. It's an attitude of total surrender. And listen, it isn't easy, and it's why we have to protect our hearts. It's why Solomon would write this in Proverbs chapter 4. He says, above all, guard your heart, for everything you do flows from it. That's the first one. Is I got, I've got to protect my heart because it is the throne of the will. The, first, the second thing is, is that I have to guard my gut, which is the seat of emotions. Now, I know that might sound a little bit weird. But in the Hebrew culture, they believed that the stomach or literally the bowels were the seat of the emotions. Now, we have all kinds of sayings that say about the same thing. When you have an, a, a, kind of an instinct about something, you talk about having a gut feeling. When you're nervous, you say, I've got bu butterflies in my stomach. When you've got a bad feeling, you say, I've got a pit in my stomach. In fact, yesterday, I read a Harvard study uh, that said, that talked about this idea in depth of how a good gut helps you emotionally and how good emotions help your gut function better. Uh, uh, I read this other article by John Hopkins University that called your stomach your second brain. And so the, the idea is, once again, that uh, your emotions are, are connected to you physically. And we see this happen, uh, and I'll show you one, which is kind of a fun one. In Colossians chapter 3, Paul wrote this right at the same time, wrote Philipp, uh, Ephesians and Philippians. He says, Therefore, as the elect of God, holy and beloved, put on tender mercies, kindness, humility, meekness, and longsuffering. That's the New King James, which uh, I, 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 we, we read out of the New King James. It's you know, it's the translation that I've used since college. And um, now, let me give you the, if you're like, well, there's a new King James, what's the old King James? And so let me give you the old King James translation of this same verse. Remember, he says, tender mercies. Here's what he says. Put on, therefore, as the elect of God, holy and beloved, bowels of mercies, kindness, humbleness of mind, meekness, and long-suffering. And, and this idea is that 
adding this emotion of mercy, bowels of mercy or tender mercies, that it impacts you to your very core. The breastplate would guard the Roman soldier's stomach. And for the believer, that means it guards our emotions because that's where the attacks can come from. I mean, honestly, how many times have we given up on something because we just weren't feeling it? Ah, so excited. And then, right, you weren't feeling it. You, you, you went, you started, you're like, I'm going to, gyms have reopened. I'm going to go to the gym. And then you went the first day and you're like, this is great. I'm going to do this every day. And then you wake up the next morning and you're like, you know, I got to let my muscles breathe, right? I'm going to let them breathe. I'm going to take the day off. And then the third day, you're like, you know what? I'm fine with the way I look. I'm going to move on with my life. And so, and that's what happens, right? We, and, and that's, you know, whatever, when it comes with like a new habit. But you know, we do this with important stuff. You know, sometimes as couples, we give up on relationship. We give up on our marriages. Um, and it's never one thing. It's a, mi a million little things that led to one or both not feeling it anymore. And here's the problem with that is the fact that feelings change and you don't get the butterflies in your stomach anymore doesn't mean that it's not good. Can I tell you that that means it's getting deeper? So uh, I, I've been wearing a wedding ring. My wife and I got married in February of 1997, all right? And so for almost 24 years, I've been wearing uh, a wedding ring. And, and you know, if you remember, how many of you are married? Can I ask that? And if you're watching at home, just go ahead and raise your hand too. No one will think you're insane. Um, and so, <laughs> but here's what happens is, um, and you know this, and if you're married, you know this, that remember when you started, when you, when you got uh, at, your, uh, at your wedding ceremony and you put on your ring, and what's the first thing you did? You started fiddling with your ring, you spin your ring, you kind of move the ring around because it just feels weird. You know what's weird after 24 years? I don't even feel it anymore. And that doesn't mean that my commitment is less. In fact, I would argue just the opposite, that my commitment to my wife is greater because I've been married to her. I just realized this uh, yesterday. I've been married to her more than half of my life. Um, and so, like, I've been married longer than I have not been married. And so, and I'll tell you what, I don't even remember the other half. And um, now, so, let me translate that into our relationship with God, which is so important because here's what happens. You first start coming to church. You come to know Jesus. You come to church, and like everything is blowing your mind, right? Every message that you hear is just like, I couldn't believe that. Did you know? Did you know that, you know, there were 12 disciples? Who knew? I thought there was, I don't know, a few. And, uh, and right, everything is blowing your mind. All this stuff that you had never heard before. You come to church, you hear the music, and you cry every time. God is doing this deep work, this just, I mean, I mean, literally, it's like he's taking you apart and putting you back together. Because God really is transforming your life. Everything is beginning to change. And then a year goes by or two years go by, and you're doing what you're supposed to be doing. And now the change isn't so drastic. Now the change is a little bit more incremental. And you have this realization that you haven't cried at church in a while. That you, you, you've heard the messages and you're like, oh yeah, I've, I've, I've heard that before. And, 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 and you're like, oh no, but I, I, there's, I haven't learned, that, you know, did, did, I, did I know everything that was in that message? And, and you're, you're, now you're, you're wondering and maybe everything isn't blowing you away like it once did because you hadn't heard it before and you don't have the feeling that you don't have. And then you start saying, I must have to find another church because... I'm not feeling it, and it must be Pastor Bob's fault because 
based on the stuff I get on my email, pretty much everything is my fault. I don't know if you knew that, um, but if there's something out of stock at Publix, just let me know, because apparently I'm in charge of that too. Um, and so, and, 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 but listen, this, this is what we do as Christians. We equate, now this is the equation. We don't realize we do this, but this is what we do. We equate emotional response with growth. And that is a bad place to live. Because what you've done is you've equated the reality of God's presence in your life to how much you feel it. And do you know that really the opposite is true? The more you know someone, the more comfortable you are with their presence. Let's, we can go back to marriage as an example. Remember when you first got married and you were learning to sleep next to your spouse? Wasn't that just weird? That, that you woke up in the middle of the night because you thought a motorcycle was going down Miramar Parkway and it turned out to be your husband's earth-shattering snoring that you're like, How, this is the only way I know this man is alive is because he, he sounds like a jackhammer, uh, you know, going through solid rock. And, and, and what happened? But now, right, so this is what happens. And then somehow, somehow, you get used to that. And then your spouse goes out of town and you have a hard time sleeping. How does that work? Why? Because their presence felt so normal to you that you only notice it when they aren't there. That's why you don't cry all the time anymore. See, because Jesus told you he would never leave you or forsake you because you've been walking with him long enough that his presence in your life feels like normal reality. And that is a sign that you're growing and this is why the breastplate protects you because it keeps you from making bad emotional decisions that end up being counterproductive to what we need. Last thing and then we're done. Here's number three if you're a note taker. And that is I have confidence in God's protection for me. If you were in a battle without a breastplate in that culture, you would be unable to take any ground because one arrow could take you out. But with a sturdy breastplate, comes a confidence to keep moving forward. And this is so important for us as we seek to do what God has called us to do. In fact, in another epistle that Paul would write in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, here's what he says. But let us who are of the day be sober, putting on the breastplate of faith and love and as a helmet, the hope of salvation. Why is this breastplate of faith and love? Because faith will never lead you where the love of God cannot sustain you. And when you are convinced of God's love for you, not because you're trying to be good, but just because he is love, because he loves you. In fact, I'll go one further. You know that not only God loves you, God likes you. You ever thought about that? That not, he not just loves you, he likes you. And that you aren't trying to earn his love. Listen, as a parent, my kids have never had to earn my love. From the moment I laid eyes on them, they had it completely. Your heavenly father loves you in the same way. And once you realize that you are completely loved, it will allow you to be courageous and to take bold steps of faith. And I want you to notice these three things that Paul calls us to live in with this breastplate. And then he mentions the helmet. He says that it's a breastplate of faith and love and a helmet of hope. Faith, hope, and love. And you and I have the opportunity to walk in total freedom because we are accepted by God 
that faith means that my past is dealt with. All my past sin and shame and failures and guilt, when I put my faith in Jesus, we became accepted by God. That means that my past is dealt with. Faith wipes away all the mistakes because of Jesus' work on the cross. That's my past. Hope, according to the Bible, is absolute certainty of coming good. And that's the future. So if faith deals with my past and hope secures my future, then what does that leave? That means love, and that means love is now. And love brings a freedom, doesn't it? When you're loved, you feel safe. When you're loved, you don't have to be perfect. People assume goodwill when you're loved. People are more honest of who they are and what they feel and what's going on when they're loved. And this is the environment that God is seeking to create in your relationship with him, where you know that you're loved and where you can reflect that love to others. And when we do, the world changes. Our world changes. I mean, think about this, what we've covered a belt of truth, truth that holds everything together when the world is falling apart and a breastplate of faith and love and a loving person who shares truth is what we need in our day today more than ever. And that's what God wants to develop in you, in me, in us. And we're not done. There's four more pieces of armor that God wants to instill us with, arm us with, equip us with to do God's will for such a time as this. Let's pray. And Lord, we want to thank you. Thank you so much for your love, for your amazing work in us, and we pray, God, for a heart that's protected, for emotions that are strengthened and steadfast, for a courage that comes from you, that we might do what you've called us to do. I pray that for all of us. And we pray it in Jesus' name and everybody said, amen. Amen. Thanks for listening to today's podcast. If today you made a decision to follow Jesus, congratulations. It's one of the best decisions you've ever made. And we as a church want to help you with your next steps. You see, we have a free gift we'd like to give you. And in order for you to receive that gift, all you have to do is visit mycalvary.com forward slash begin. Don't forget to tune in next week for our next podcast. God bless you.